On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Dan Hicks, who, of course, is um, known to everyone um, as um, uh, the NBC's lead play-by-play golf announcer for the past 24 years. Dan's had just a stellar career at NBC Sports for, um, I think, close to 32 years, um, and he's done a number of things um, for NBC Sports, uh, football play-by-play back when he started, um, continues to do stuff in summer winter Olympic coverage, but of course it's golf that I think he's probably most known for and what we focus on. Um, and in that regard, uh, we talk uh, about him having had the uh, good fortune of paralleling um, Tiger's career um, and having had a front row seat for um, just about all of it. Uh, and uh, including, of course, his iconic call uh, for Tiger's U.S. Open win at Torrey Pines in 2008, and we talk about that, and also what it was like to work with Johnny Mellor in the booth for nearly 20 years, um, and more generally how he prepares for his golf announcing assignments and uh, the challenges of broadcasting golf as compared to other sports, um, uh, as well as um, uh, how... uh, PGA Tour is kind of weathering the divide with Liv. Uh, and uh, at the start, we talk about how he got started in the business. He's from Tucson, Arizona, uh, and uh, only went to high school there, went to college there, University of Arizona in Tucson. And um, talk about that, how he got started, and um, his early years at CNN before NBC, which, among other things, is uh, where he met his wife and fellow sportscaster, um, Hannah Storm. So all of that uh, coming up next uh, with Dan Hicks on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy. So welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I am so pleased today to have with us the great Dan Hicks, the voice of golf on NBC and, and many other things, the Olympics that he's done so, uh, so many years. Dan, thank you so much for making time and joining us today. Larry, my pleasure. Can't wait to talk to talk golf. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. So just to give people a little bit of context, you born and raised in Tucson, um, graduated from high school there, went to the University of Arizona. Um, just sort of curious, how and when were you first introduced to the game of golf? Wow. I um, Growing up in Tucson, uh, there was a guy by the name of Johnny Miller who used to come in there uh, every year and kind of scorch the earth, as they say, and shoot a million under par. For sure. So the Tucson Open was kind of a big deal in Tucson. It was a really big deal in Tucson because we didn't have a professional sports franchise of any kind. It was It's basically a college town. So when the Tucson Open would go through there, they would also bring in celebrities like Dean Martin used to host it. It was right. the Dean Martin Tucson Open. Joe Garagiola did it for right. years. And so they would bring a lot of other athletes in as celebrities, because I remember watching Reggie Jackson and going out there for autographs. And so anyway, that kind of, I, I thought that was really cool. The golf, I kind of kind of recognized that golf was a pretty cool sport, although I didn't really play it. I didn't grow up in a country club and I didn't play a lot, but that introduced me to the game from a PGA Tour level where I thought, wow, these guys are really good. And I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind that might be a cool sport to play someday, but I didn't play it on a regular basis growing up at all. Got it. Interesting. Okay. And, um, you know, I know you majored in journalism at Arizona, um, and obviously you've had this and continue to have this great career in sports reporting. Um, when did you kind of decide, you know, that, hey, this is kind of the route I want to take. We'll get into your early career. And I know right out of uh, U of A, you went to, you know, radio in Tucson and then the local NBC affiliate, but sort of, uh, so it sounds like you knew kind of at some point early on, this was the route you wanted to head. How did that uh, come about? Simple as this, Larry, I absolutely loved sports. I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine myself not making a living at it. Um, I played every sport growing up, football, basketball, baseball, went from season to season. I devoured the sports page. I looked at box scores. I studied up. I read the sports page cover to cover. <laughs> and so I was just head over heels over sports, always have been. I think it's uh, to this day, the best reality show in life. Yeah. And I, I just think it's, it's magical. And I couldn't imagine myself not being a part of sports 
in some way. And after I realized that uh, I wasn't going to play shortstop for the New York Yankees as a living, <laughs> or I wasn't going to play basketball for the Phoenix Suns or the Knicks, uh, <laughs> I realized that maybe the best place for me to be is to cover it every day, be a part of sports in that way. And I was always fascinated by the electronic media of it, listening to Ben Scully uh, yeah. with a radio in bed uh, as I as I went to bed, this just to transport me to these magical places yep. to sporting events, which I love. So that's that was. It's just a love of sports. Is as I I've had it all my life, and uh, I'll have it till the day I die. That's awesome. Um, so you uh, right out of uh, U of A, you went as I mentioned to the local radio in Tucson, then the weekend sports anchor reporter on the NBC affiliate in Tucson, and then um, you were doing that, and then CNN. Uh, calls. How did the CNN opportunity come about? Yeah, so I did radio and TV in Tucson, and I was doing TV at the time, and I got a call one time at the station, and a woman introduced herself. Her name was Jean Sage, and she says, uh, I'm an agent. And I said, I don't really even, what, what is an agent? What does <laughs> an agent do? And she said, well, I'll put it this way. She goes, do you want to do, do you see yourself someday getting out of Tucson, Arizona, do you hope to do that someday in a bigger market and a bigger yeah. platform? I said, absolutely. Sure. So she knew the the president of CNN Sports, which was a guy by the name of Bill McPhail, who was the longtime president at CBS Sports 20 years prior to that. And right. so she had a relationship with him and, and she sent my take to him and he liked it. it they didn't have any room for me at the time because... They were getting ready to hire another woman by the name of Hannah Storm uh, <laughs> at the same time, which is a whole other story. Yeah, we'll get know. to that. I, that's great. <laughs> yeah, so ended up, uh, you know, he called me later on, CNN called me later on and said, we really like it. They flew me out and I eventually um, ended up getting the job. Thanks to the person that I didn't know what the hell she did, an agent. And I ended up uh, having an association with her for a good uh, 20 years after that. She was great. Great. To That's be. tremendous. So you mentioned, of course, your wife, Hannah. Um, so you met at CNN. Is it? So I, I saw somewhere that you two met in an office elevator. Is that sort of the first <laughs> time you met? Is that true? That, that's a true story. I was making my way up to the offices at CNN Center in Atlanta, where the CNN Sports Studios were on the elevator. The elevators open up. And the first person I see, I knew who she was because I'd seen her on the air. She'd only been there a month, but I'd watched the watch the show. And it, I'm like, you're you're Hannah Storm. She's like, yes, I am. She had this bubbly, you know, great personality. <laughs> yeah. And for sure. she proceeded to show me to the makeup room, which I needed to go to before I went on the air. So she kind of she befriended me. She was she was great to me. Um, she had been all over the all over the country in various jobs. Her dad was a sports executive. So she was the worldly woman meeting the hayseed from Tucson, Arizona on the <laughs> elevator and showing me the ropes as to how to adjust to the big city of Atlanta. So uh, that's true. That's a true story. That's wonderful. And of course, you know, you guys, wonderful family, your three daughters. Um, that's great. That's how you met. So the other thing, and I kind of remember this, you and I are about the same age. I remember those days with um, the CNN Sports Tonight. I mean, people a little younger where everything now is on the Internet, you know, may not remember this. But of course, you know, ESPN had their sports center with all, you know, Dan Patrick, all the legendary sort of anchors. But CNN Sports had kind of a comparable arrival with Fred Hickman and Nick Charles. Um, sadly, they both gone way too soon. But um they were an awesome team then. So you must have sort of interacted with them and kind of had a ringside seat. I think you even probably did the show on the weekends. But um, what was that like? Because they, from, obviously, I never met either of them, but they were super on camera. Believe me, Larry, I was, uh, when I left Tucson and I got a job seeing in sports, I, I couldn't believe it. I had to pinch myself when I first met Nick and Fred. I mean, right. Nick Charles and Fred Hickman, you're right. It was a, it was a two-horse race. It was seeing in sports and ESPN at 11 o'clock at night was the big show. And they had a lot more bells and whistles and budget than we did. But we had some great people, not only Nick Charles and Fred Hickman, but you mentioned Dan Patrick. He was at yeah. CNN before right. he left. That's we right. We had a guy named Gary Miller, who I worked with, became great friends with, still keep in touch with today. 
Hanna was there. Vince Cellini, guy right. by the name oh, right. Jim Huber. He is uh, he has since gone. Yeah, uh, was a great writer and went on to work for TBS and Turner and covered a lot of golf. And um, yeah, that's right. So it was a it was a who's who of folks. They were talented. And Bill McPhail, the former vice, the former president of CBS Sports, assembled us all, hired us all. He had a great he had a great eye for talent, and uh, it was a it was a great time. I learned the business. I learned how to rock and roll. Uh, but I got to say, I was pretty darn nervous when I uh, did shows for the first time with Nick and Fred. They were they were my legendary icons of the business, and to work shoulder to shoulder with those guys was a thrill. Yeah, I can imagine Nick and Hick. They were an incredible team for sure. So you're there for a couple of years, and now just to bring you over to NBC Sports, which I think was in '92. So you've been gosh yeah. thirty plus years um, at, at NBC Sports. How did that opportunity come about for you? Yeah, so I did a three-year deal with CNN, and Hannah, who was at CNN at the time, also had a three-year deal. She was a month getting her contract expired before mine. So NBC had expressed an interest in her for a long time. In fact, Dick Ebersole, the longtime president yeah. chairman of NBC Sports, tried to get Hannah out of her contract. They loved her so much. She'd only been at CNN for a few months, and they were trying to buy out her contract. Wow. Ted, wow. Turner, Ted Turner put the kibosh on that. So Hannah had to <laughs> Hannah had to fulfill. That's a whole other story for another podcast. <laughs> but anyway, Hannah had to fulfill her three years, and so she went. And as she was going to them, they started calling my agent, and we started having conversations. And so I ended up being hired by them a month after Hannah, after my contract expired. And we were dating at the time, but. NBC had no idea we had any kind of relationship. Interesting. So when I got hired by NBC, I'll never forget. Even you know Dick Ebersole, the guy who hired us, and an executive producer by the name of Terry O'Neill hired us, and neither one of them had any idea we were dating. I remember going out to dinner, grabbing a drink with Dick to kind of celebrate. And Hannah and I were at the, were in Atlanta. And he happened to be in Atlanta, so he took us out, and we kind of told him what was going on. He goes, "Man," he goes, "I had no idea." So there were whispers in the industry that oh, <laughs> Hannah, Hannah and Dan are a package deal at NBC Sports and blah, blah, blah. And so Dick had to put a, a quick kibosh to it and said something to the effect of, we don't do package deals at the network. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got, you got to kind of earn your way here. We don't uh, we do not do that kind of thing. So that's kind of how it all materialized. They needed some studio anchors at the time. I had never done play-by-play. -play. But they were going to make a play-by-play -play guy out of me, which I was thrilled to do because that was a dream of mine to do play-by-play. -play. So that's when I started doing play-by-play -play when I got to NBC, but I'd never done it before. What different sports did you do? Obviously, we're going to get to golf, which, of course, is your main gig now. And I know you took over for Dick Enberg, you know, uh, as the lead guy for golf when he left NBC to go to CBS in 2000. But you get there in 92. I know at some point you started getting involved with golf coverage, which obviously we want to talk about. But what other sports were you doing? You mentioned the play-by-play -play stuff. I mean, we, I, I, I don't remember. I know Notre Dame football was at some point in your career and a few other things. But what was the play-by-play -play stuff you were doing in the early days there? So when I got to NBC in 92, they still had the AFC NFL package, which okay. meant you would have crews of like six or seven you know, broadcast duos that would go out and do all the games because they were regionalized, right? And that yeah. was the low end of the totem pole. So I would get like, and at the time, like Cincinnati and Seattle were the like, right. you know, the doormats, yeah, the respective right. divisions, right? And so I was working my way up. I would be, I'd work with a new analyst every year because I was on the, I was on the bottom pile, and I would break in the new analyst. I was breaking in myself at the same time. I mean, I had <laughs> very little play-by-play -play experience, so. Needless to say, Larry, we weren't exactly turning in Emmy kind of stuff, but <laughs> I got better. And that's really the only way you get better in this business is to get thrown into it. So I did a right. ton of NFL. I did, you know, probably, I don't know, 10, 12 NFL games a year. Wow. Then okay. I was also doing every sport from gymnastics to the Ironman triathlon. I was doing figure skating exhibitions. I was doing a lot of different things that were kind of honing, you know, my play-by-play -play craft because all these sports have a different vibe, a different kind of gear For to sure. them. And learn them. But at the same time, I was also throwing in with a golf team and I was doing a, an outer tower. So if you've got, you know, I'm, I'm now in the 18th tower with whoever it may be, the, the main analyst, but back then I was on an outer tower. So I would do holes 
And then once the leaders got through my holes, I would go to the 18th green and do the presentation and do the interview with the champion and right. Bob or Arnold Palmer or whoever right. it would be right. at the time. So I was constantly sprinkled into golf and they thought that I would really, they thought my style fit golf. And I, I think they were right. I think of all the sports that I did, I took to golf more naturally than, than any other sport. Um, I loved it. I was a student of the game. So I threw myself into it. I loved to play it. So I knew how hard it was. Right. And I kind of knew the nuances of it a little bit. And I, and I just got better at it. And then finally, you know, like you said, in 2000, when Dick Emberg decided he had missed football so much that he was going to leave his longtime home of NBC, he went to CBS and I was right guy, right time. And I was able to, uh, to get uh, the 18th tower with Johnny Miller and the rest is history. Yeah, and of course, yeah, Johnny was already there, and you guys, we'll talk a little bit about Johnny. You guys had such a great run. But, you know, as I think back to your timing, um, and I'm sitting here um, probably, you know, a drive and a five iron away from the edge of Riviera, which I'll head over to tomorrow to watch Tiger, um, and uh, which, of course, we don't see him very often anymore with at his stage of his career with his injuries. But you were had a front row seat. For most of his career, Tiger started, I guess, in the fall of '96. So you're you're really there for peak Tiger, um, and um, you know you, you obviously you know you've seen other incredible record-setting athletes. Famous call for the relay with Michael Phelps at the Olympics and stuff. So you've and done your Olympic stuff, but what has it been like? you know, to sort of watch Tiger and kind of how, as you look back, you compare him to sort of other record-setting athletes you've looked at, because he's kind of amazing, to say the least, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it, he is. It's it's exactly that. He's one of a kind, I feel. And it's very, you got to be very careful, I think, when you say that in sports to say, oh, there'll never be another one of those guys. I think we could say that. I just think, and even if somebody approaches 15 majors, which isn't, by the way, happening anytime soon. Right, not anytime soon. Um, <laughs> even if they did, Larry, if you know, and I always, you know, I, Jack, Jack's the greatest because he, you know, he won 18 of them, right? Tiger's got him in the PGA Tour Victory Department. He's tied with right. Samson. But it's the way Tiger won tournaments. Yep. And I will I will argue with anybody at the end of the day. You give me the greatest highlight reel in golf, it is not even a question. Tiger blows yes. away Jack. Jack was more, you know, he was more um, clinical in the way he right. won. Right, more methodical type. Right? Tiger Tiger was up by five. He wanted to win by ten. And that's the kind of mentality that we saw. We, we saw him for the first time. We did two of his three U.S. amateur titles. So my first tournament that I did with Johnny Miller, actually, very first one in the 18th tower was the U.S. Amateur in 1995 at Newport Country Club. Yeah. That when he beat the car salesman, Buddy Marucci. In the right, from field. Philadelphia, right. Yep. And then he went on the next year, Pumpkin Ridge. And that was the first uh, of our primetime Tiger shows because we were on the West Coast. Right, right. And that's when we first got an idea of, wow, the, the magnitude and the power of this guy in the television ratings department it's crazy. So we did those two amateurs. And then I had we've had a front row seat to him ever since he was a teenager. And to watch the arc of his career is just mind boggling. And I'll, I'll say this, that I say this all the time. But if you took Tiger's life story, career story, and you went into a Hollywood producer somewhere near you out there in, in L.A. <laughs> and, you put, and you put and you put the script on the guy's desk and you said, read this. And he read it and you said, and he said to him, well, that's, that's great fiction. Right. And you, he said to the producer, every single part of that is true. He would never believe you in a million years. That's the kind of life and career that Tigers had. And to have a front row seat to that, um, to ride the coattails of that career and have all the moments to be a part of the incredible moments that myself and Jim Nance and everybody else yeah. has had the privilege to cover him has been, uh, just a lifetime dream. Yeah, for sure. And I hadn't realized you did the amateur at Pumpkin Ridge. So, I mean, that one I'll always remember because he was, of course, down to Steve Scott. Um, yeah. And, you know, and and um, uh, and those and, and that putty made on 17 in the second round must have been 30 feet across the green. I mean, just it's just incredible. I mean, his and, you know, I mean, we could go on and on about Tiger, of course, you think of the putts he made uh bob may when he won the pga i mean just you know when he had to have it 
most of the time he was running away with it. And of course, Pebble in 2000 is probably the best example, um, which was just crazy. But um, when he was in a close battle, he would just, when the when he needed it, he always did it. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's almost, it's too unbelievably true. So now he's on this, like you think is the last chapter of his regular PGA Tour career. But I learned a long time ago, never to sell himself short, never to sell him short. Right. Just when you think that there's you've seen it all he's got another chapter to write so uh you know i really don't believe we've seen the last of it and uh, the latest one's going to be written uh a driver and a pitching wedge away from you you know we'll yeah see. well <laughs> i remember what the crowds were last year um when he teed off and i'm sure it'll be I'll, I'm, I'll head over there tomorrow i have to ask you one thing in terms of tiger um you know we could talk all day about tiger and what you witnessed but of course i think um, if we had to boil it down to one call and one moment that's particularly associated with you is at Tory in 2008, when, you know, he comes to, I mean, that battle with Rocco Mediate again, you know, we were talking about how a lot of times he romps, but he's had his battles with, you know, I mentioned Bob May at Valhalla and, and Rocco, just a magical week. Of course, no one knows that Tiger's, you know, basically doing this on one leg, although you could see him wincing and limping. And he comes to that last hole, the par five at Torrey, um, needing to force a playoff with Rocco. He's got that, you know, wedges up there. He's got, I don't know, 12 feet or so on those bumpy POA greens um, that he absolutely has to make. And of course, you know, that's one of your iconic calls, you know, expect anything different. Um, the no laying up guys have that as part of their intro thing to their <laughs> podcasts, um, along with, of course, Gary Koch's thing about better than most. But um, I, I just take us back to that as you're watching that. And I'm just sort of curious when you see him, you, when you is that a line that you kind of had in your mind as you're thinking, well, he's coming up to the green. What am I going to say? when he, if and when he makes it, or is that just in the moment? How does that set to happen? Yeah, I've been asked that many times. And it the, the the best way to describe it is, as we were, you know, Tiger was walking around this putt. And the great thing about it, Larry, is we had plenty of time to set it up. All the guys on the ground, Johnny set up the putt, set up the whole thing. And so we had time to let it just kind of sit before he, before he made the stroke. But as so in this in this kind of pause silence, I was looking around at the green outside of our tower and it was like 15, 20 deep. And there was this kind of palpable feeling like everybody on edge. It seemed that they expected him to make it. And then I look over at Johnny Miller to my right a couple feet and he's looking at it kind of like with this almost a smirk, a little wry smile on his face as if Johnny's thinking I expect him to make it. So. The feeling as the ball is rolling along the Poana and it's kind of bumping along. It is up. bumping. When you yeah. look at the close-up of it. Yeah, it does. Still, I still thought the overwhelming feeling in my head and my heart and my body was like everybody expects him to make this, and and I expect him to make it. So the ball goes in. I wait a beat. The crowd goes absolutely crazy. Right. The hair on my arm is up. The electricity is <laughs> on the charts. And it just came out. Expect anything different? Like, you know, <laughs> do we expect anything different? It was just kind of summed up my feelings, and I hope everybody else's feelings of it from sure did. How much I could gather from the whole moment. So it was magical, and you just hope that you get those moments first of all. Right. And then you all, you hope. All right, let's not screw it up. You don't want to get in the way of it. You want to enhance it. And so. I think our team. Uh, I think our team did a pretty good job. Tommy Roy with the replays of the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The timing of it. It just. You know. I think our team really uh, stood up to the moment, and it'll it'll stand the test of time. A hundred percent. And I and and I'm. You know, the camera work. I'm glad you mentioned that was fantastic because there's that close up where you see the ball kind of bouncing a little bit as it makes its way. Because you know, Poa that does that on those greens. It was it was an awesome moment. Let me sort of. Um, talk generally with you about kind of golf announcing um, and kind of how you approach it. Um, you know, how do you sort of uh, prepare for your announcing assignments? I mean, um, you know, do you sort of try to spend a lot of time with the players or is that more for, you know, the person in Johnny's seat or kind of how do you prepare? Because golf is so different. You've done everything. And it's so different in so many ways announcing than almost any other sport. I'm just sort of curious kind of how you prepare for them. 
Yeah, so I keep up with the sport. I love the sport. And I would probably watch it and read about it, even if I wasn't doing it for a living. So I'm constantly reading about it. I read everything I possibly can. I listen to everything I possibly can. I listen to the Larry, your podcast. <laughs> no, but it seriously, it is a it is a fact gathering business to where you get to these events and I'll recall something that I read about Scotty Scheffler. And I've got a great research guy to my right named Gil Caps and another research guy named Bill Fields, who's one of the most respected golf writers in the business who wrote for golf, golf world for years. Yeah, he's great. I get his, and, I get his yeah, newsletter, the Albatross. Albatross, the Albatross. Right. Shout out to Bill Fields. Exactly. Anyway, he's he said, awesome. I agree. He's fantastic. Those two guys. So if I have something in my head, I'll be like, God, you know, I, 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 th I think I read where Scotty Scheffler changed, changed his putter. Can you guys look up, you know, get, you know, look up a little bit and see if you can kind of confirm to me. So there's all this information going back and forth. So, I get, I do that, and I think that's, and I read all the transcripts of all the interviews these guys during the course of the week. I think that's really important for you young announcers out there who want to kind of be prepared. Read the transcripts when you, you know, when the when the media sits down with them, because sometimes you're not able to listen to the to the press conferences. So I do all of that, and then even more importantly, I try to get out to the range before the tournament. Um, I'll go out there, whether it's with Paul Azinger, who used to be with me. Um, and, or Johnny Miller and I used to go out there or I'll go out there by myself with a tower announcer, Kurt Byram, whoever it is. I think yeah. it's really important you get out there and you talk to the guys. Hey, what, what are you working on? Um, and you get these nuggets that I put on my iPad. We have a huge bio research department. I've got all the bios of the guys, but I put my own personal notes on those bios of my conversations with them. So I can even look up and they're all archived. So I can look up Kurt Kitayama at Bay Hill last year, one in Orlando. And I could say to myself, you know what? I remember talking to him about this college experience he had. And I can go to those notes and I can bring him up, you know, at this year's tournament or if he's in contention at another tournament. So it's this whole constant exchange of information. And then once the tournament starts, I try to get out there, too, once the field gets pared down from a competitive standpoint, right. to maybe 10, 12 guys, I go out. We'll hang out. And again, it gets a little more serious. You don't want to bother them too much because they're in their office. Right. But you hang around. Maybe a caddy will motion you over and you'll have a quick 10, 15 second conversation. And you'll say, hey, what are you working on? Well, you know, my driver face broke today and I was in the trailer trying to get a new. And it's good, immediate information that you can share with the audience. So I think you got a responsibility to stay in touch with these guys um, as up to the second as you possibly can. So it's this whole gathering of all this stuff. And then you got to always remember, Larry, too, that it's the game. And in this case, it's the tournament on the course that takes over. You got all this information and tidbits, but you don't want to just start laying them out there. You right, got to let right. it come to you, right? Right. So I think my biggest responsibility to, to wrap, wrap, it, wrap your question up is I have to make people care about who they're watching from a personal standpoint. In other words, if you just had a bunch of people out there competing, whether it was swimming at the Olympics, golf on the PGA Tour, wherever, whatever it may be, if you don't have some sort of investment in that athlete as a person and care about their story, then chances are you're not really going to care if they hit a five iron 10 feet to win a tournament, you know? So right. that's right. kind of my biggest responsibility as a play-by-play -play guy. I let all my experts, analysts say, Hey, I don't think that should have been a five arm because the wind is up and he needed to hit, you know, he needed to hit a four arm. I let those guys who played the game for a living handle that. My area is is the other is the other stuff. That's a great answer. That's very interesting. It makes perfect sense. Um let me ask you this. Uh you've done, you know, a, a number of other sports. Um, and I think about when you were talking about the NFL. Um, almost all the other, at least the major sports, they have their natural pauses. You know, the team's punted away. We have to go to a commercial break. You know, we're in between innings, you know, in a baseball game, natural break. NBA has its TV timeout. So you're, you know, you're not missing anything, you know, when uh, you're, um, when we have the commercial. Here, Golf has just got to be really different in terms of announcing, um, not just because of the point about not breaking, but just, you know, the whole sport. There's a lot of I mean, you're going shot to shot, but there's a lot of downtime. It's just really different. Um, and how do you sort of um, 
how does the difficulty as, an, as somebody who's in your role as the play-by-play announcer, how's the difficulty of golf compared to the other sports? And, you know, kind of related to that, what sort of, you know, having done it for all these years, kind of the hardest or most surprising aspect to you of doing that role? Yeah, well, first of all, and I tell this to everybody, and I think any producer, director, or anybody in that truck during a golf telecast who's worked other sports as well, will tell you that golf is the most difficult one to do because it's spread out over acres and acres of land. Right. It never stops, as you said. There's never a timeout. It never stops. But we got to pay for the telecast. So right. we have to have advertisers, and we got to leave from time to time. So you got to do your best balancing act. And we got a guy, obviously, Tommy Roy is the best producer that I've yeah, ever worked Yeah, he's famous, with. right, yeah. There's a, guy, there's a guy by the name of Tom Randolph who played college golf at UCLA who is an absolute savant. And he has a computer chip, a golf computer chip in his brain that enables <laughs> him to time out shows where he, his objective and our objective is to give everybody the most live golf that, th that we can possibly cover. We can't get it all. Some of it's on tape. And so I have to do those dreaded words, this from just earlier or <laughs> moments ago. Moments ago, right. <laughs> which sometimes, frankly, pisses a lot of people off. And they say, Dan, why do you got to say a moment ago? You're spoiling the action. <laughs> well, journalistically, I feel we have to do that because if everything was just happening, sometimes it wouldn't make sense if Steve Stricker holed out on the 16th green and five seconds later he's hitting a tee shot on the 17th tee right if you didn't say that happened just a moment ago at 16 and now we're live at 17 yeah. you know so, you, so it's a jigsaw puzzle of live and tape shots no other sports like it so there are challenges to it there's stuff happening all over the place um you know covering a Ryder cup is is pretty nerve-wracking because you better be there live when the Ryder Cup is clinched. And there's so many possibilities that come down the stretch in a matter of seconds, you know, because all you need is a tie in this match to clinch the cup. Right, that, right, right. You've got four up with four to play. Oh, so if you get, you know, all these all these scenarios are in the balance. So it's it's challenging, Larry. And, uh, you know, we can't cover it all and we do our best. we got to pay the bills. And it's just different than other sports. And in this day and age of everybody wants it live all the time. Right, nonstop, right, right. It's impossible to do that unless you have alternate channels, alternate platforms, which golf has uh, delved into delved into through the years. So, yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, let me sort of go to what I was going to ask you about TV coverage generally, because we're sort of touching on it. And you mentioned the commercial load. I mean, and, you know, you got to pay the bills and, you know, the P you guys, all of you, you, it's not an NBC specific thing. CBS, you all have, you know, pay, um, good money to show this. You got to, you got to sort of get your return. Um, so, but people, you know, the golf fan always chafes a little bit at the commercial load because the sport never stops. And um, I know you guys have sort of not, not just you, I mean, CBS too, you know, adopted this playing through approach on some commercials where you put it in a box and stuff, which is, it seems to be a nice improvement. How do you sort of, um, see the coverage evolving. Um, you see more of that, or you see what, I mean, I'm just sort of curious because um, it's sort of an, an inherent tension with the having to do the commercials, but, you know, for a sport that never stops. I mean, um, like I said, the playing through approach is, is a neat thing. I mean, do you see any sort of more general evolutions in TV coverage of golf? Yeah, I think the playing through was a good move. Um, but, the, you know, the people will complain that, oh, my gosh, it's so small, I can't even see it, you know. Uh, <laughs> so you're always going to get you're always going to get pushback no matter how you try to present it. But, you know, I don't know. It's a good question. I think I think we can get maybe more creative um, from what I hear. There's a, a, a ton of money being uh, thrown in from private equity into the world of the people. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that I'm hoping and I don't know because there's a lot going on, a lot to be decided but money drives everything. Money yes. will drive a better broadcast. Money will pay for production costs or advertising costs lost by showing more golf. Right. Like 
it's like a, a company will we've you know Rolex uh, you know the, the uninterrupted coverage we right they, they right that's a good you know, example. we never hear we never hear from the pundits so called when we do an entire tournament like whether it's a U.S. Senior Open or a U.S. Women's Open we never take a break uninterrupted coverage by Rolex and you know that that that's that's pretty cool of a company to jump on board so I guess what I'm saying is if there could be more deals like that to buy time to where the audience ends up you know just not missing anything or missing or my 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 perfect scenario is a company getting involved to cut down on the commercials i it's funny i think some breaks are are good because i think if you have the whole thing wall to wall it might be i know from our from our coverage standpoint to give us a minute 30 seconds to just kind of gather ourselves after being on the air for five hours is great and i think sometimes the audience needs that too but if you can make those breaks in the right periods of time that's the key but i think if if corporate america couldn't get involved and help out in this regard because rights fees aren't going down anytime soon. no that's for sure and that's the trick of this whole thing is that you know live sports becomes more and more of a premium yeah. um, for networks to buy up it doesn't get any cheaper to produce these things so i think that's what's happened is the sports rights fees have gone up and people like us are trying to figure out ways to match the sports rights fees going up and still giving people a quality production that is getting harder and harder to do because we're paying more rights fees which might take more money out of the production so it's a it's a tough game i think uh you know we're aware of it i think everybody in the business is aware of it um you know we're looking for ways to improve and uh and i think uh, i think we're going to see i think we're going to see things continue to improve with some some more innovations yeah that makes sense um i got to touch on a couple of personalities we got to give our due to johnny um you know who you had such a great run with um and he was such an unbelievable lead analyst and and it's funny you started off i remember you know, he was like Desert Storm in the early 70s when he would go to Tucson and Phoenix and just lap the field and, you know, with these crazy under par things. And, you know, he was so arguably the greatest short iron player ever in the game. Um, but then he's already in the analyst seat. You know, as you mentioned, when you take over for um, Dick Enberg in 2000, so you had a long, long run with him, almost 20 years. Um, he was so candid. Um we wouldn't hesitate to sort of criticize players. Um, what was it like working with Johnny? I mean, that must you guys were such an awesome pair, but I'm just from your standpoint, what was, what was that like? It was never a dull moment. It was uh, <laughs> an incredible ride. And I think, you know, I think you can kind of sum up an analyst best as far as from my standpoint of working with a guy is if you don't really know what's coming next. Yeah. And that's what, that's what was the deal with Johnny. You had no idea what was going to come out of his mouth minute to minute, second to second, which made it fun. Yeah. It also made it it also made it nerve wracking in kind of a nervous way, because sometimes things would come out of uh, his brain and his mouth, which there was no filter, by the way, between right. his, his right. brain and his mouth, which made him great. But sometimes it, um, it, it could be I don't want to say awkward, but. It could be so harsh and abrupt and cut right to the core of what he was talking about that sometimes the best thing I could do is to let, you know, 10, 12 seconds go by and send it over to 16 Gary Koch. So um, <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is sometimes I had no response. It was just what it was. It was Johnny being Johnny. Yeah. And he was so such a breath of fresh air. He I think no one has had a an impact on broadcast golf more than Johnny Miller. You could argue yeah. Frank and Ian back in the days when he started right. the CBS, but I think, I think the one announcer that is taking golf to another level of not just, you know, warm and fuzzy and this and that Johnny, Johnny really got into the psycho psycho analysis of what it takes to play golf. And anybody that's played golf, Larry, you'd be the first to say as well. Yeah. You know, the pressure factor, the yes. nerve yes. factor, yep. um, bigger the tournament. Um, we used to, you know, I used to get into the booth with him on a U.S. Open Sunday, and that was his favorite day because he knew, sure. it, he knew it was different. And right. he would say that. He goes, this is championship Sunday. This is when guys get what they work for or can't handle the moment. And so 
he was he was very keenly aware of that and I think he dialed into that those moments where he felt that a guy was nervous or he could see a shot or he could see body language that no one else could see he would say it and you know it wouldn't make all the guys on tour necessarily all that happy I would that's say for him sure a couple yeah. of weeks ago and I, you know, they come right up to me and say, "How does Johnny know what I'm thinking? How, how does he know?" <laughs> and I go, "Wait a second, guy." I go, "He might have not nailed exactly what was going on inside your head, but here's where here's here's the thing: he gets paid for his opinion. Right? He gets paid to provide his opinion, whether that is your opinion or the girlfriend or the wife's opinion of this particular player. That's another thing, but that's what he gets paid for." And that's what Johnny did unabashedly um, for twenty for thirty one years at NBC yeah. was never ever compromise his honesty of what he thought. And that, in a nutshell, is what makes a great analyst. Yeah, that's great. Well said. And and he he was fabulous to listen to the DMNU. You know, the one um, thing I was thinking about, um, and I think I may have even seen this somewhere is you guys at NBC get the British Open back from ABC or get it from ABC. And of course, 2016 was just an incredible two-person battle uh, between Hendrik Stenson and and Phil. Um, I mean, they're just, it, it was almost, you know, they were like lapping the field, um, kind of memories of Watson and Nicholas lapping the field. In Turnberry, I always remember you, Green, you finished third, like ten behind them, saying, "I won the tournament." I don't know what guys tournament these guys were playing <laughs> in, but but um, similar to that, and they're just. Uh, but on Sunday, Stenson just shoots sixty three to win, and of course, sixty three Sunday major. You string string those three things together, you think Johnny Miller, of course, with the sixty three at Oakmont. Um, you guys are watching that. You guys are teleguising that what's Johnny's reaction to that? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because the moment was coming. Stenson was just so, I mean, Mickelson shoots 65 and loses. Right, right, Sunday, right. Which is crazy. So Stenson's lining up that putt and it, it had kind of been building to that moment. And I was wondering the same thing. You know, what, what kind of reaction is Johnny going to have to a record that stood on its own for so many years? And I mean, that's Johnny's calling card. The defining moment of his of his career was the 63 right. at Oakmont. And um, I think if you listen to it, you might detect something as if to say there was a little bit of tinge of disappointment. I think I really do. I think I haven't listened to it in a long time, but just being there in the moment as I get as I get transported back, I, I that that was my feeling at the moment. I don't know. I never really asked him, I ne uh, but it just kind of happened. And um, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think if, you, if he was here with us in the conversation, Johnny would say something to the effect of, well, you know, Oakmont was a lot tougher golf course than this place. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's what he might say. Um, but, yeah, I think they both stand on their own. That duel was as good as it gets. That was our first Open championship. Right. And, but uh, Johnny still has a piece of history. He's the only one to do it in the U.S. Oh, Open. for sure. So, I mean, um, yeah, that'll. Absolutely. I mean, Oakmont, Oakmont is the is the uh, is the granddaddy of them all as far as difficulty goes. Although some people will say, well, they left the sprinklers on the previous night, right? I mean, you sit here and yeah, I, I know the members at Oakmont weren't too happy, and you know, and I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, and you know, of course. That led to the massacre at your place, a massacre at Wingfoot the very next <laughs> year. Right. Where That's I right. mean, poor Hal Irwin wins with seven over par. I mean, Wingfoot yeah. was so hard. Nicholas gets on the free, I'm sure you know this being a student. Nicholas gets on the first green in the 74 US Open and hits his putt, not like a 25 foot putt, hits it like 20 feet by. Yeah. Um, that four course putt. was brutal. Yeah, at, at Wingfoot. Yeah. Four putt. Yeah. yeah. I tell the story pretty much every time I get to the first uh tee <laughs> oh, or first green at, at Wingfoot West, Larry's I, I tell people, don't feel bad, you just three putted. Uh, Jack Nicholas four putted this in a US Open one day. So um yeah, it's great stuff. It is great stuff. So let me ask you just another personality, not not um not at NBC, but Jim Nance, who has had you know an even longer run than you. Um, in the similar seat for CBS. What sort of, 
you do you guys sort of compare notes you friendly with him or whatever with him i mean he comes across i've never met him comes actually that's not i played pebble once and he was actually driving up to the snack bar after nine or ten with his kid and he was so nice i mean he came yeah. stopped he said hi i hope you guys are enjoying your day um so i actually did meet him once but anyways here is kind of uh you know your relationship with him and you know given that he's doing the same thing for your See for CBS or you are for NBC. Yeah, um, I know Jim pretty well. He's he used to be a member of Wingfoot. I'm not sure if he's still a national member, but uh first time I played golf with him was at Wingfoot. Uh, oh wow. And it was great. He is a fantastic guy. I will say this, he's so unbelievable at what he does. Um, people have no idea how hard it is to jump from sport to sport and because they're they're different. There's you know football, which he does a tremendous job at, golf, which he does an unbelievable job at. They're all different. They all have their different gears. And I think I think what sets Nance apart is he's able to find the right gear at the right time, right thing to say. He's just got an incredible knack for that. So um, I and I also say this is that he is one of the funniest guys you'll ever meet. Really interesting. With. Oh yeah, he. First of all, the guy's got a memory like crazy. I mean, he remembers <laughs> details about every single place he was, every conversation he had, every golf course he was at. So it's just a it's a constant running commentary, right, of where he was. So we hit it off because we do the same. We do the right. same thing. We, we're just bouncing all these stories and situations um, off each other. You know, you know, when we play, get together. I don't. Uh, I haven't played with him in a while. I haven't. I don't see him as much as I used to for whatever reason. But obviously, we we do different events, so we're really not at the right, same right. same spots. But he's a delightful guy and uh, truly, truly on you know the Mount Rushmore of what we do. He is uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy, a phenomenal person. I mean, you hear all these great things um, about him, and uh, they're all true. They're all that's true. wonderful. A, yeah, a number one class guy. Bottom line, yeah. That's great to hear. And that is, you do hear it from all of his colleagues, for sure. So yeah. let me um, kind of venture into our, our final topic, which um, uh, I'm just curious as we sort of look forward, we talked a little bit about where TV coverage may go, but I can't sort of uh, not uh, <laughs> bring up live these days. Um, and uh, <laughs> What's live? I've never heard yeah, of I it. I've never heard of it. Right, I, exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's funny. I had Alan Shipnuck on the other day and, you know, who, you know, always talks about how live is a, a gift from the content gods. And I said, you know, I said, yeah, and for him, you know, obviously wrote the book on Phil, wrote the book on live um, that just came out. They're both great. He's a tremendous writer. And um, but it just keeps changing. I mean, it just keeps going. You alluded to earlier SSG's large investment in um, what is going to be a taxable entity, you know, that's going to house all of the commercial ventures of, I guess, not only PGA Tour, but DP World Tour. We'll see what happens with, um, uh, you know, with with the PIF, with the Saudi Arabia Investment Fund, whether they're going to invest or not. Um, but, um, and who knows? I know, you know, Tiger alluded to it yesterday, you know, they're still talking, but I guess the thing I sort of focus on, curious your thoughts on, is just where I'm sitting here, you know, as I mentioned, I'm going to go over to Riviera tomorrow and the defending champ's not there. Um, and, um, you know, John, that's a big hole in the in the PGA Tour with John not sort of being there, John Rahm. And, um, you know, it's sort of from a golf fan perspective, sort of, yeah, we've got these signature events and I get the concept and that's great, but, you know, We've got all, you know, Brooks, you know, John Rahm, you know, Cam Smith, you know, people who are absolutely top 20, 25 players in the world, more than that. John was, you know, higher than that. Not part of it. How do you think about that? And do you sort of see them coming back together at all or or and, and how does it sort of affect you guys and, and your thoughts as you, you know, as being one of the voices of the PGA Tour? I think that anybody who thinks about this and analyzes it once one thing I hope they do at least I do is we need to get everybody back playing together somehow some way get the best players in the world playing together because the way it is now fractured not not fun yeah. um, we're, we're getting through it and I think 
You know, that's why, you know, I, I, I call sports the best reality show anywhere. We, we still have these moments, right? I mean, look at the PGA Tour season and all the great stories that have happened amid this swirling controversy right. and up in the air, live, piff, PGA Tour, you know, Nick Dunlap winning as an amateur. Right. And, and all yeah, the that great was stories. awesome. Even, yeah. yeah, even though they're not superstars that have won so far here early in the season on the PGA Tour, they're great stories. Yeah. Uh, Wyndham Clark shooting 60 at Pebble Beach, you know, and and Charlie Hoffman getting in contention against Nick Taylor in a two-hole playoff at the, the WM Open, which we just did. Pretty compelling stuff, but... I miss I miss a number of guys that are over there. I miss I miss Dustin Johnson. I miss John yeah. Rock. I miss Bryson DeChambeau. Yeah. Those guys are characters and by the way, really good players. And they should be taking on the Jordan Space and the Scotty Schefflers, you know, and we should be getting more of that other than just at majors. Uh, we need a, a steady diet of that. So bottom line is I don't think anybody knows, Larry, where we're gonna be exactly. It's it's still, I think. Very much up in the air, at least from what I can tell. Um, I I remain optimistic that it's going to happen. I was troubled by the fact that we were led to believe that there was a deal coming at the end of 2023 or close to it right. of resolving this and having this merger, this framework agreement finally solidified. And then all of a sudden, John Rahm gets paid right. a zillion dollars. And wait a second, you know what's going on here? What is, what right. is this all? Is this right. is this is this lives? Uh, latest salvo that they fire to say we're not exactly excited about how this deal's going right um so um you know unless you're in those meetings with uh you know tiger who's now a player director and the rest of these people the pga tour and live and piff and all that i think you're just i think you're guessing i think i think they're i think the ssg i think the the 1.5 billion well it remains to be seen how it's all going to be divvied up i mean PJ Tour put out the announcement of how these different categories of players are going to have equity. It's a lot of swimming in numbers yeah. for the fan, for the fan and anybody to digest right now. Um, but nonetheless, man, we still we still love it. You know, we still love the competition. So I hope that the fan hasn't been irritated to the degree that we're losing fans of golf and golf telecasts. I don't think we're there yet, but I know that there's a lot of disgruntled people that are like, come on. Can't can't we get these? Can't we get all these rich golfers on the same page with the rich, uh, you know, money from Piff and Live and Saudi Arabia? Um, it's sad. It really is sad. It, it saddens me to think about the hit that golf's taken and the fact that we have this now large piece of of golf history that's not included the best players playing right. all right. the events. But I think if we can get them back together. Um, like so many other ways, I think uh, we're a pretty forgiving fan base. And I think uh, I remain optimistic that we're going to get everybody playing together again. I hope so. Uh, I, I think that's all well said. It is um, it's just frustrating to sort of see this, but hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Um, hey, Dan, this has been great. I know, uh, you know, you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today um, and um, love, you know, the work you do and look forward to watching you and the rest of the NBC team as uh, you do the Florida swing, I guess is coming up when we finish here in California, you guys usually take the, you know, lead on that. And uh, of course the players and all the other major events uh, coming up. So thank you so much for chatting. Larry, my pleasure. Uh, great spending time with you. Uh, enjoy Riviera, enjoy the rest of the golf and uh, hopefully I'll see you in person on a, on a golf course and we can tee it up one day. I would love it. Thanks very much.